Well, have a seat, everyone. Uh, we now approach the Lord's table, the good gift, the Eucharist, uh, communion. And, um, you know, it's a little difficult for me, uh, sort of a theology geek, uh, pastor guy, to be going through the last couple of weeks around here in Kansas City with the Royals and not theologically interpret what's going on in Kansas City. Uh, this is where, you know, how do you ruin a, a good game uh, and you just need to leave it to me. And um, because I can't help but notice, you know, having been one of the old timers that um, I remember 1980, 1981, 1985, I remember all that. And uh, it's an amazing thing to watch a city pull together. Um, around something so fun and if they didn't win another game we'd all think it's a huge win right uh, although you know somebody just told me in between services that ESPN and everybody else says they're supposed to win the World Series so that's pretty cool but um, but I, I can't help but think about it theologically I thought what binds a people together what what draws a people um, into a like mind and what causes people to have such excitement for one another and for fun and for joy and even in loss and hardship, you know? And I can't help but then think about the Lord's table. And um, this is the theology geek moment. Because Augustine in the fourth century said, you know, all of us come together from our separate places and we're all like grains of wheat. We grew individually um, and then someone takes them and they mill those grains of wheat and turn it into flour and then they Augustine said and then they mix it in the water of baptism and then they put it in the fire of the Holy Spirit and out comes bread something that can never be separated again back into its individual parts into grains of wheat Augustine also said well he said the same thing goes in for the grapes and he said, uh, you know, you were all once grapes, but then you got crushed together and squeezed. You don't really think about getting squeezed when you come to church, but. And then um, something magical happens when you all get locked up together in a barrel. And the Holy Spirit shows up and you're no longer grape juice. You're wine. We become a different people. And I can't help but watch the Royals thing going on and think we're, we're a different city. Next season will even be different, even if we don't go to the playoffs. And we aren't a, the same people when we come to church. We aren't the same people when we eat of this loaf and drink of this bread. And that's what Jesus was doing in the upper room that night when he said, he said, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Eat this, all of you. By the way, the servers ought to come forward about right now. Take this bread and eat it, all of you, if this is my body which is broken for you. This is a symbol. It's a sign. It's even a, it's even a reality of us being mixed together as flour, baptized and fired to where we become one. Jesus is saying, you eat of this and you're one with me. We're inseparable. My presence is in you. You participate. You participate in my, <laughs> my revelation in, in this world. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, and after giving thanks, he said, drink this, all of you. 
drink this because this is the blood of my new covenant. You drink this. You drink this and you're participating in me. You're participating in my cross. They didn't know it at that time, but you'll be participating in the resurrection. And you'll be participating in that road to Emmaus where the two disciples see Jesus finally in the breaking of the bread. And their eyes were opened and they saw things the way it really was, is. So now, God, we are gathered at a table and you are the God of creation. You are the God of bread. You are the God of wine. You're the God of everything that we have, the wheat in the field, the grape on the vine, and all that we have. And we have come here in this moment, God, to reflect upon your daily bread and your gift to us. We come to be bound together and changed as a community, as a force. Breathe your spirit, God, over the whole earth and make us a new creation in the body of Christ. In the fullness of time, God, bring us with all of your saints from every tribe and language and people and nation to feast at a banquet prepared by you, God, when you raise that glass and say, let the banquet begin. And we look forward to that day. Mark us out in this symbol of bread and juice. Through Christ, with Christ, and in Christ, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, to you be honor and glory and praise forever and ever. Amen. Would you stand with me, please, as we approach the table? Um, and we'll have the Lord's Prayer together here as we pray as Jesus taught us to pray when he said, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial and deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. Come forward whenever you're ready. Tear off a piece of the bread. Dip it in the chalice. Eat it right then. And you may kneel at one of the side tables if you wish to, to do some business with God. Well, everyone, um, we are talking about work this morning. And I felt for some time that... Uh, maybe even since I was thinking about it since 2009 even that we need to go back and revisit a theology of work and do uh, the labor of understanding why we work and so forth and why what's going to get you up tomorrow morning and uh, so I want to make sure we get some things straight around here and also to inspire you about what you'll be doing uh, tomorrow of course um, you know if you work, then this will be good for you. If you're retired, you know you're already working harder than when you worked. And if you're a stay-at-home mom, then you know there's just the gentle weeping in the corner. So, um, so hopefully this will help you understand what you're doing with your life and part of your identity. So to begin with a theology of work, we want to go right back to the very beginning in the Bible, to Genesis chapter 3, if you brought your Bible or if you have it on your uh, iPhone or iPad or whatever, or if you want to look like you're looking at your Bible and actually text, then you can do that. But um, uh, go to Genesis 3, verse 17. Genesis 3, 17. And we pick up in the middle of things, and this is what we would say is going on after the fall. 
Then to Adam, God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground because you were taken uh, from, because from it you were taken and you are dust and to dust you shall return. Verse 20. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. Ah, yes, the garden story. Familiar, even if you're not a Bible reader, you know parts of this perhaps. If you are a Bible reader, then you've studied it probably many times. It's not exactly the most inspiring moment in the Bible. As a matter of fact, it may be really the very worst moment in the Bible, other than perhaps uh, that Good Friday with Jesus on the cross. For some time, though, we have been needing this reestablishment of where we get the idea of work in our identity. Why do we work? And this morning is where we're going to explore it. I'm convinced, and you probably are too, that the workplace is a wonderful proving ground for character and moral. Nobody needs to be here to, to, as a proving ground for your morals in Sunday morning. Everybody's on their best behavior. It's tomorrow you've got to worry about, particularly if you get up late and try and get the kids on the bus and all that sort of thing, and then the, you know, things really, the wheels come off the wagon and it all goes to pot. But at the workplace, it's a proving ground of morals, of character. I try not to turn the Bible into just a moralist agenda, but nonetheless, it's right there that the workplace is a place where you will see who you really are. It's this proving ground, but we begin then to think about it beyond the moral and the character part of work is it's also a place where I, our identity is established. Why? Is work of God? Is work a curse? Is work something evil? Shouldn't we not be working? These are the questions that Genesis 3 answers. So to talk about one's identity and one's emotional health, we need to establish part of this identity that we have that is work. So fellow humans, our fundamental identity as God's creation means that we are designed to work. In your image of God, in your very essence, in your spiritual as well as physical DNA is work. It's in your imago dei, if you want to get the Latin going on it. Your image of God. You are designed to work. It is not a curse. It is not a curse. It is not a punishment. It is not, work is not evil. It's not an exception. It's what you're supposed to do. Now, some might say, you know, uh, well, it's God's fault for making us work in the first place. You know, 
And they want to ask God, well, why do you make us work? I mean, I understand the fall and all that, but couldn't you come up with something else, you know? Why, why weren't we designed the way the original intent of it was is that we'd all come down in the morning and open up the fridge and there'd be all of our favorite foods and we wouldn't have to work or do anything. Life would just be easy. No combines, no harvesting, no planting, no fertilizers, none of this stuff. We'd all just walk outside and pick up, pick up fruit like in the garden. Isn't work an evil thing? And the answer comes back, no, it's part of your image. It's what you're supposed to do. We're not being punished. The Bible story is the beginning of humanity right there in Genesis. And some of the fundamental principles about the world are being worked out and declared in the Bible. Even if you don't believe in the Adam and Eve story as like literal, you know, history, the principle is right there and you can't miss it. Lots of people think we work because God got mad at the first human beings and ate of the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, but that's not an accurate reading of the whole thing. It never says that work is punishment. We work because we're in the image of God, and God loves to work, and that's why we call Him the Creator. You and I have this deep foundation in our soul that makes us crave meaningful work. We want to add. We want to create. We want to be procreators. So think about it. Adam and Eve had some of the coolest jobs ever. They worked before the fall, you know. They were working, taking care of the garden, and then doing that animal naming thing, which sounds like a lot of fun. First off, the fruits and vegetables. I don't know if there were pests on the thing or brown spots and that sort of deal, but maybe they didn't have to worry about any of that. I'm not quite sure what they did. Maybe they just went around and picked the stuff. I don't know if it rotted or what. Maybe they didn't care. And then the whole animal naming thing, that sounds like a lot of fun. Especially it sounds like the animals didn't eat you when you named them. You know, like, you are a leopard. Ah! You know, and run away. Like, well, that wouldn't work. So maybe that was okay. They didn't have to water anything or put fertilizer on it because the dew came every morning. They didn't have to worry about that. You see, God didn't curse them with work. They worked because they were imitating God. Because they were made in the image of God. Work is good. Work is what we're designed to do. The Bible says that God cursed the ground. The ground became hard. Work became difficult. That's the curse. The curse is on the ground, not on work. So when we disobeyed and wanted to be like God, now we have to work hard. But make no mistake, like our Maker, you and I are designed to work. And that's why little human beings... If you leave them alone in a room somewhere, they're going to start tearing something up or whatever and start making something. They're just going to do it. You give them a bunch of blocks, they'll figure out something to do with it. Now you might think, well, yeah, they stack them up and then they, you know, knock them down. Or more accurately, if you're a parent of young children, you stack them up and then they knock them down. But nonetheless, eventually they'll get around to start doing the whole Lego thing and the whole bit. They love to imitate you. They love to imitate whatever. That's why, like, if, you know, if you're in the medical profession or if they've been to the hospital or they went with a hospital somewhere, they'll start imitating a doctor or a nurse or a, a, a medical technician or whatever. My brother was in the hospital for months because he, you know, got hit by a car and his motorcycle and all that. And so he's kind of a tightwad about things. And uh, every time they'd walk in with a roll of, you know, medical tape or a tube or a respirator deal or whatever they had, he'd say, now, did I buy that? And they say, well, yes, you did. You're paying for all that. And he says, well, fine, give it to me. And he'd stick it in a box underneath his bed. And then that box came home, and he gave it to my kids. 
and particularly my daughter when she's about four or five years old. And if you fell asleep on the sofa for too long, you may wake up with all sorts of tubes and tape and everything stuck all over your body with prescriptions being given. And then her little words saying, like, it's going to be bad. I'm like, oh. I'm like, oh, boy. And then that tape gets ripped off later. So, uh, but that's what kids do. Every work is honorable. There's only a few jobs that are inherently evil, like the man who came crying to me one time because he ran a video porn shop. But otherwise, computer technicians, construction workers, carpenters, artists, uh, executives, stay-at-home mom and dads, all of it is honorable work. Even the guy who drives the honey wagon, and you know what I'm talking about, right? The guy who sucks the stuff out of your septic tank. That's honorable work. And God bless him because it's not the honorable work that I want to do, but we all thank God for the honey wagon man because he, he's up to his knees in it. Anyway, um, <laughs> Scripture says, right out of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, what does the worker gain from his toil? You can hear Solomon saying like, is work ridiculous or what? What does the worker gain from his toil? And then he answers it with this that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. It is a simple thing of satisfaction. I hope we can have this noble, godly viewpoint of our lives. That when it's all said and done, work is a gift of God to put food and drink on the table. It creates dignity, everyone. Dignity. And dignity is so important for, for human beings. Whether it's a child that they don't get browbeaten, or as Scripture says it, that they get exasperated, or whether you're old, because you know it's so important for old people to keep their dignity. When you stop working, your great question after retirement is like, where, where do I find my dignity? They don't really usually voice it that way. But it, and then dignity begins to get eroded and it gets taken away. Pretty soon they take away your driver's license and your car keys and it's a loss of dignity. And they take away your medicine, it's a loss of dignity. And pretty soon you don't even eat or go to the bathroom on your own schedule and it's all just a loss of dignity. Our society is, in my opinion, deeply broken on how to create dignity in older people. We have some things to redo on that. Work creates dignity no matter what it is. It's all God-honoring. And the great error of our affluent top dog generation is this belief somehow that's crept in that says work is evil and wrong and it should be avoided at all costs and we shouldn't work and we should do whatever shortcut we can come up with so that we don't have to work. And this is the strange part. That's what's gone on over the last 20 years or 25 years. Let's just say since the last World's World Series, okay? Um, What's gone on is a, is a strange decay and degradation of the meaning of what work is and the meaning of work. Because whether it's the dot-com crisis in the 90s or even in 2007, 8, and 9 and the mortgage crisis, whatever it's been, it's been because somebody tried to take a shortcut with the belief that I shouldn't have to work this hard. I shouldn't have to work this hard. And so we end up with Enron and WorldCom and Quest and then comes Morgan Stanley and AIG and they all took shortcuts to the big pile of dollars. Stanford graduate business school professor and West Point professor Jim Collins uh, wrote the famous book uh, Good to Great. He wrote an article here a while back in Fast Company 
And he summed up this very point in his article. He said, the, the great problem of these crises has been simply this. Some executives decided to take a shortcut and just go for the big pile of bucks. They degraded, they dishonored work. Collins says the problem of this generation is this unscrupulous executives only chasing the dollar. And he says the executives knew exactly what they were doing. They decided as a choice in their will, in their heart of hearts, to do wrong. The housing collapse of 2007 was exactly the situation when mortgage investors got lenders to provide loans based on ridiculously inflated housing appraisals and billions of dollars of loans were made based on fiction. And then someone called it and it all collapsed. And then you and I had to pay for it again. So here's the spiritual life lesson that we all need to learn about these shortcuts to the, to the pile of money mentality. God is against easy money. Why? Because easy money uncouples meaningful work from paycheck, from the money. And when you de decouple meaningful work from money, it falls apart. You can't have one by itself. You see, God is not against wealth. He's not against working for wealth. He's against taking the shortcut to get there because it's dishonoring the image of God within you. It falls, it falls apart. Work resounds within the praise of heaven, everyone. Work resounds with the imitation of God within your soul. Work even drives us towards the Sabbath rest. And this gets really curious at this moment because I've been to places like China and you're, you're there for a while and you're like, you know what, they don't have a day off. People just work right on through seven days a week like the Roman Empire. It's part of the reason why the Jews were weird to the Romans. They're like, what's this deal? They'd like take a day off? And yet you can, you know, some scholars actually believe the whole Genesis story is, is setting this up for the, the Sabbath rest. Because the Sabbath does not make sense without the six days of work. Six days God created the earth and then he rested. You go and do likewise. And it is in that rest, that settling into God, that moment where you say, God is good. And tomorrow I'll go back to work. That's actually its own whole class uh, curriculum in itself, studying on the Sabbath. So the Sabbath makes sense when we understand work appropriately. Work drives us there. So I think deep down in this generation, and uh, I'm talking about Generation X, you know, and I'm kind of older than Generation X, as I've already said now a couple times, and so don't rub it in, but, you know, I'm kind of on the end of the baby boomer thing and not really quite a baby, you know, buster. I, I think they called me a bummer, something like that. So um, I'm kind of in between. And so I'll tell you where I think this all started for your guys' generation, for Generation X. It all started back in, I'm just going to say, 1985, with the movie Back to the Future with Marty McFly being called a slacker. You're a slacker, McFly. And Gen X heard that, and I mean their cockles got up. And they're like, don't call me a slacker. And that's why that was such a famous line. Even to this day, if you call a Gen X or a slacker, they'll look, give you a look that'll kill or worse. They're not slackers. 
The problem becomes when it says they go into an I'll show you mode and I'm going to get my pile before you get your pile and I'm going to take it all and I'll do shortcuts to get there. Be careful not to connect your self-worth too closely to how much money you make. You will become unraveled. If you measure yourself by your paycheck, you're in for a world of hurt because you're going to uncouple meaningful work from the paycheck and soon work will diminish and simply become a means to an end. Now Ecclesiastes says the means to the end is that you put food and drink on the table and go to bed, you know, tired that night and wake up like that's good but not just the pile of money. So be careful here. Money is not the best measurement of your identity. Work is actually a better measurement of your identity than the money that it brings. You see, every one of us someday will stand before God and give an account of, of what we did. And God's not going to be like, well, how much money did you make? There may be very well something in there about like, did you imitate me? Did you contribute to society? Did you do something good? Was your work honorable? Did it bring dignity to others and to yourself? And you say, yes, it did, Lord. Good. Enter into the joy of your master. How you make your money matters more than how much you make. How you make your money matters more than how much you make. And that's why there's dignity, even if the paycheck is not that big. It's still God-honoring. And it's bad when we judge others because they don't make as much as us. Now we turn to the wise and eloquent words of King Solomon. And in his book of wisdom, Ecclesiastes. Now Solomon, throughout this book, if you've ever read it, uses an old word called vanity. You know, vanity, vanity, everything is vanity. And the modern translations change that, the New International Version and so forth, change that word vanity because we don't know what it means to meaninglessness. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. And that's, that's, they've actually, the latest translations are beginning to put the word vanity back in and getting rid of meaningless. Because this word vanity is important and you can't, it's not, it doesn't mean meaninglessness. It doesn't mean that it, that it like was nothing. It means, instead, and I'll have you in a difficult time trying to get it defined. Vanity means that it was absolutely self-centered. That you made yourself out to be your own idol. That you're worshiping yourself and that it does not count because you're making it a vain thing. Or to put it this way. It's meaningless only, vanity is meaningless only in the fact that it would be like if you use the food equivalent, it would be like cotton candy or, or, uh, or Cheetos, the puff ones, not the crunch ones because we all know the crunch ones have lots of nutrition. But the puff ones, those are the evil ones on Cheetos. And it would be like if, if vanity were a food, it would be cotton candy or puff Cheetos. You eat them and they're fun, but there's nothing there. You can't live off of them. And believe me, sometimes I feel like I've tried in my life. It's just not there. And so we want to take this word vanity at its heart, which says, are you contributing something that is not vain? Are you working in such a way that is not vain? Do you put food on the table and do you go to bed at night and do you live your life in a way that is not vain? Or are you captivated and driven by the money thing? 
Work is good in and of itself. It is intrinsically valuable because you are made in the image of God. The money is not the measurement of who you are. It's the work. And that's what Solomon is trying to get at. And I want you to help me read this together. So I've set this up in sort of a back and forth antiphonal way, uh, reader and response and so forth, so you can kind of get this down. It's not just me saying things anymore, but it'll be you as well. So sit up straight because we got work here to do. Oh, and by the way, there's a word in here, a fancy word that I had to look up, surfeit. Surfeit, like the wave, except surfeit means excess, okay? And this is the word you're going to say, so surfeit means excess, so you'll know that when you get to it. All right, let's begin. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10 uh, through 20, and so here we go. The lover of money will not be satisfied with money. Okay, now you. When goods increase, those who eat them increase. Sweet is the sleep of laborers, whether they eat little or much. Ain't it true? There is a grievous ill that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owners to their hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. As they came from their mother's womb, so they shall go again. Naked as they came, they shall take nothing for their toil, which they may carry away with their hands. This also is a grievous ill. Just as they came, so shall they go. Besides, all their days they eat in darkness and much vexation and sickness and resentment. This is what I have seen to be good. Likewise, all to whom God gives wealth and possessions and whom he enables to enjoy them and to accept their lot and find enjoyment in their toil. This is is the gift of God. Guys been brooding much lately? Do I make enough money? That kind of brooding? Me and the Joneses, am I keeping up? Our friends are all taking vacations, how come we don't? They drive a nicer car, how come we don't? <clears throat> they live in a cooler house and have a cooler sofa. Why don't we? That's brooding. It'll eat you alive. You are doing wonderful things tomorrow morning when you get up and go to work or manage the kids or do your retirement thing. Nothing gives me more joy around here than when every now and then I get invited to some award that one of you are getting. And these awards are given out by your workplace or by some community organization or whatever. And you know what? They never give out the awards for like, well, Bob, man, he worked 80 hours a week. Now, they might do that in the office on some Friday afternoon or whatever. But the ones where everybody shows up in coat and tie and gets, you know, the plate dinner and all that, not for working 80 hours a week. Not for making a huge pile of money. You know what you get awards for? When you invite all your friends in the community? 
he or she made a meaningful contribution to our city, to our, to our, to our community here. This guy, this gal, they improved life as we know it. We are better off as a group of people because of him or her. That's what they give awards for. That brings dignity to life. And that is a worthy goal, not the pile of money. Find dignity in your work. Help other people. Honor God and others. And may your work satisfy you. May it bring you the honor and dignity that you deserve that is in the image of God. And may justice be done. And may those, may those who are in dishonorable work be convicted and moved to the place with the rest of us of bringing dignity to our culture and our society. Amen? Well, let's stand and we will be dismissed with this old uh, Celtic blessing from North Britain, uh, North Great Britain, the Celtic spirituality. We do this one many times. And by the way, you know at the end, everyone crosses themselves. Some people do and some people don't. And you know what the, when people cross themselves, what that means is it says, I am marked by the cross of Jesus. So, you know, if you're, let's just say it, if you're a good Baptist, you say, well, I ain't going to do no dang Catholic stuff. I'm just saying like, you know, but you'll wear a cross around your neck all day long, right? Well, get your body going, all right? Get your hands moving. Act like you mean it, all right? May the, join me. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace, everyone.